What's up, people? Hotep Jesus. We back with another sharp conversation with Hotep Jesus. I'm your host, Brian Sharp, a.k.a. Hotep Jesus. Thank you for everybody here tuning in with me today. I appreciate your presence. For the people tuning in on uh, Apple and Spotify, go ahead and leave me a review. Nice little five-star review. Little comment. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. As you already know, I'm a three-time tech startup co-founder. Wazo AI, camera vision analytics. Shout out to Jazzy. We got a promissory note. 100K. Checks already cut. Things are happening over there at Wazo. Got a meeting with the team tomorrow. We're going to discuss finalizing some of the UI and getting that stuff ready to go. Also, Coinbits app, coinbitsapp.com. Coinbitsapp.com is the easiest way for people new to Bitcoin to purchase Bitcoin and get involved in the crypto cryptocurrency craze. It's only a dollar per transaction. Custodial app. Shout out to my partners, Yusuf and Maher. The gentleman that started that company. Wonderful, wonderful guys. Great to work with. Thank you again for getting me involved with that project. And shout out to Simone, founder of Jiffatize, my partner. Great, great idea she created. Jiffatize allows you to download just some videos directly from Twitter to your iOS device. Android version is in the works. Hopefully we'll have that coming soon. I got a new book coming out. You guys are going to love it. It's right in the lane of what you're used to me tweeting. As far as uh, politics in America and history is concerned, this is my first history book I'll be publishing. My Twitter book it was a warm-up. I had to, kind of had to write that just to get some ideas out of, my, out of my mind. Basically write down my marketing philosophy as of whatever year it was. I think I wrote that. I think it's 2015 or something like that or 2016. That link is in the description box below. That's an evergreen product, man. I mean... All your favorites are copying that book and releasing courses based upon that book. It's the grifter's favorite, favorite playbook. But if you want to do something right, just like start a business or a nonprofit organization, you should get yourself a copy. And of course, I wrote The Unbreakable Rules of Masculinity. It's not a pickup book. It's not a pickup artist book. We don't pick up girls. My philosophy is let the girls pick you up. And that's what the book does. Set you up. To become a chick magnet, but more importantly, like forget all that. Like, eh, chick magnets for young boys, you know, not taking life serious. Really, what it does is allows you to have great relationships with women, whether it be your mother, wife, girlfriend, whoever it is. You'll understand women. You'll understand what it takes to be a stoic gentleman. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce to y'all my guest today, Star. Hollywood star of Mighty Ducks. What was that? What was that movie you were in with the? You, you were a rich kid. Well, I was. Uh, it was called First Kid. First well, I Kid. The son of the president of the United States of America, and Sinbad was my Secret Service agent. Yes, yes, that's it right there. I remember that as a kid, man. That was a classic, man. I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, it was good. And, and I, I want to give some thanks, express some serious gratitude to Sinbad. 
I was not a star at that point in my career. I'd had supporting roles in some major movies, but I'd never been a star. And this was a major motion picture at the time. And so I was competing with, you know, all the biggest young actors at that time period. And Sinbad chose me because of the chemistry we had. So I, you know, want to forever give him thanks for giving me that break, that opportunity, that opportunity to shine, that opportunity to rise. So thank you, Sinbad. How, what was your involvement in that movie? Is, was it just from an acting role? I, I played the first kid. I was the star of the movie. Right, right. But didn't you get into more of movie production and, and writing the films? Yeah, so um, well, I was a very entrepreneurial kid. And so I started acting at the age of three. So I didn't choose to be an actor. I just grew up doing it. I didn't know anything else. And uh, I was very blessed or fortunate to have a, a fair amount of success. And then at the age of like 15, 16, you know, I'm asking myself, what is it that I want to do in life? What is my calling? And I decided that I wanted to write my own script, you know, be the director of my own life. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so having grown up in the entertainment business, that was, you know, becoming a film producer, you know, to be someone that was facilitating, you know, putting the project together. And then at the same time, I was a, you know, I was a young guy, uh, the first generation of kids growing up with the internet and computers and Oregon Trail, all that stuff. And I saw how internet or the, the technology was going to change the world. And I decided I wanted to become an internet entrepreneur. I remember talking to my management, you know, my agent and saying, I think I'm going to quit acting. I think I'm done with this. I think I'm going to go become an entrepreneur. They're like, what? <laughs> People would do anything to be in your situation. You can't quit. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to become a tech entrepreneur. They're like, what are your qualifications? You didn't go to school for that. It's impossible. It'll never work. Come on, stick to acting. I'm like, no, I'm going to give it a try. And so I went out and, uh, started my first tech company at 16, 17. We raised $88 million to, to build what you think of today as YouTube, Hulu, Netflix. We were like the first company recognizing how the internet was going to change media and that content would be distributed over our computers. I remember like the TV network heads and the studio heads at the time were like, you're never going to convince us in a million years that people are going to like watch movies and television on their computers. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and here we are now. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. So you're uh, definitely ahead of the curve. Um, 88 million is a lot of money. How? Uh, yeah, a ton of money. <laughs> what, what, yeah, so that's a ton of money. So I know it doesn't all come in at one time. So walk me through day one at this startup. Is it you and a programmer? Uh, what does that look like? Well, I was introduced to someone that had a bunch of success in prior businesses that had moved out to Los Angeles and they wanted to, you know, build a company at the intersection of entertainment meets technology. And they couldn't find anyone with a vision. And so I was introduced as a young entrepreneurial kid that had views about how media was going to change and pitched them this idea of, you know, five minute episodes and the idea that you can click on anything and purchase it. And we can serve audiences that are not currently served through broadcast and cable because the internet in theory has infinite channels. There wasn't a limitation on that. So we can start to serve all sorts of audiences. They're like, Oh my God, you get it. And so we started a company. Uh, what was the name of the company? Uh, it was called Den or digital entertainment network. Okay. And uh, uh, my co-founder put in the original money. Then we did an angel round and raised like, I don't know, another what five was the, or When so you say million. original money, how much was that? Well, I think it was kind of uh, whatever it needed on a month-to-month -month basis. Okay. Often, like when you're the founder and self-funding, you just kind of pay the bills. All and right, so you, you can we're talking about just, just, just operating costs. 
Yeah, and then we did a, a a seed round. I think that was five million. Now hold on, hold on, hold on. Like I'm in this world, so I'm at this point. I'm picking your brain, so I'm going to slow you down on each part of the process. So we have this guy that comes in and he's paying operating costs. What what are you guys doing as an operation in those first few 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 months? Are you the developing the software or? Uh, it was creating content and then developing, you know, the website, which back then was not a trivial thing. You didn't have SaaS services and all these open source tools back in, this is 1997. To build a sophisticated website was like $5 million. You know, right. what you can do today for 50 grand. Right. Um, the world has changed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, back then, just servers. Um, you didn't have Amazon web services. Like you needed to actually own servers and you needed to find a data center and Things were complicated. Right. <laughs> like every piece of the process was hard. So you were actually um, creating the content yourself. Is were you starring in this content? Were you hiring actors and directors? How were you creating this content? Well, I was weighing over my head. I wasn't really qualified to be producing content, but I knew more than anyone else on the team. So <laughs> uh started doing that. Yeah, we we started making the uh our first shows. Um I gave Sean William Scott his first acting job. Uh, Allison Lohman. So I guess I would have had a future as a casting director if I, if I had I stayed in that business. But then we hired um, we hired away the president of Disney Television as the you know the first formal employee at the company, and so that what did he do for the company? Started, huh? Well, what was his role with the company? He became president to oversee production, and we built up uh, a production team to make thirty different original programs, kind of like Quibi, uh, which just failed right now, but basically the same concept back in 1997, 1998. And so we built up a very large production team. We were the hottest company in Los Angeles at the time. We were kind of like viewed as the, the future of media. And it, was it this, became a very big thing. Was this after the seed round or before the seed round? Uh, it was right after the seed round. Okay. So how much and did you raise in the seed round? I think it was $5 million. Wow. If my memory serves me correctly. Wow. From who? A uh, bunch of angel investors, basically people writing fifty thousand dollar checks to you know five hundred thousand dollar checks, an angel round, but a very big one. Who was uh, who was who was who was doing that? Like like going out and and finding these people that wanted to to invest. Well, some of them were friends of mine, like child actors, like Ben Savage and Fred Savage from Wonder Years, and okay, and then. You know, you went around and pitched how, you know, the world of media is changing, the internet's changing everything, and we'll be able to distribute content, and you'll be able to watch things 24 hours a day. You're not going to be limited by, you know, we. it, it was a very different world mm. back in the mid-90s in terms of, you know, how you watched content. If you Oh, this was mid-90s like, you were doing this? Yeah, this is 1997. This is the beginning Ooh. of the internet boom. Oh, dial-up. Yeah, it was dial-up days. Damn. <laughs> it was 56K baud modems, yeah, which is part of the reason why the business ultimately failed is broadband didn't roll out at the rate that everybody had forecast. But if you were around for that internet 1.0 boom, it was kind of like the crypto market in uh, uh, when we mm. had the, the big ICO craze. Mm. You know, everything was raising money. Things were raising massive amounts of money. The first companies were going public. It was, um, it was a wild time. Uh, and an incredible learning experience for me. Obviously that business didn't work out, but it taught me a lot of things. One is it gave me the comfort to walk away from whatever I was doing to reinvent myself. Mm. And it taught me most of the lessons I needed in business that allowed me to go on to do all the other things that I've done. 
And so it was an incredible learning experience. Mm. Okay. So uh, that company is defunct due to uh, restrictions because who wants to wait, you know, that long to download content, right? Um, so what do you do well, after it, that? It, it, so, so it's also the spring. The, so we had this dot-com boom. Everything like was out of control. Everything was, everybody was raising massive amounts of money. And then in the spring of 2000, the entire market collapsed and 99 out of 100 businesses failed. Like it was like nuclear winter. Yes. And following after that happened, there was no investor on the planet that was willing to like look at an internet company. The internet was basically written off as a dead medium, even though all the fundamental metrics were up and to the right, user adoption, people coming online, you know, but investors had been so burned by the internet that no one wanted to even look at it. Uh, you know, companies like eBay were trading for below cash, even though they were profitable businesses. Mm. Yeah. The market was not rational. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, well, at that point then I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm now, uh, uh, I'm now a washed up child actor. I'm a college dropout and I'm a failed entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What, what do you do? Do I go get a job? Mm, no, I think I'm going to try and do something else. And I had an idea that virtual worlds and that virtual currency would be a big deal. Mm, okay. And so I started my next business, which was making a market for digital currencies in online games like World of Warcraft and Second Life. Okay. And that happened, uh, that happened to turn out to be a big thing. It was so successful that my biggest problem was actually finding enough people in these worlds to sell me currency that I could like buy and sell. There were more buyers than there were sellers. And so I went to China and I taught the Chinese that you could play video games professionally to mine digital currency and sell it all over the world. And that you could make, you know, a hundred dollars a day or more. And at the time in China, that was a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> and so um, we built up a supply chain of about 400,000 people that would play video games professionally to mine digital currencies that we sold all over the world. We did over $10 billion of sales. And so, we were PayPal's largest merchant for years. We were Google's largest advertiser for a moment. Uh, we were instrumental in the launching of Alipay. Uh, I rolled up all the video game sort of fan sites, which became a top 100 web property in the world in terms of traffic. I sold that to Tencent, started the first television channel in China by a foreigner, which was video games, games TV. Uh, we were throwing the first esports competitions in China all over the world, renting out massive stadiums. This is 2005. Mm long before kind of the esports craze that we've found ourselves in the last few years. I'm often early, <laughs> sometimes too early. Yeah. Uh, that could be a curse, right? Because I've made certain predictions where I've understood that, uh, or I've come to understand that I was just way too early and, and people were like, I don't get what you're saying. And so that's one thing about being early is knowing how to deliver on time um, and get started. I mean, you want to get started early, but you want to, be able to deliver right on time so people can kind of get it and catch up. Um, so what was the name of that company? There were a bunch of different brands, but IGE was the main sort of consumer brand. Uh, the media network was called Zam. Uh, the television channel was Games TV. Uh, we had a bunch of brands. So like if you were buying virtual currency in a game like EverQuest, I was 10 of the top 12 brands. I decided to keep rolling up everyone and I kept them operating as different brands. Okay. Um, actually, when my first major investors came into that company, 
uh, Bart and Brad Stevens, the guys that I started blockchain capital with. So back in 2004, they run, the, they run a hedge fund, which was the biggest investor uh, in video game companies, public game companies. And they were playing World of Warcraft and they're like, wow, look, we're, we're spending $100 a month buying virtual currency and we're giving Blizzard $14.99 a month. Wow, this whole like game currency market is huge. Mm. Well, let's go figure out what's doing here. We figured out something first and they went and started doing who is searches on domains and they saw the top 10 brands were all me. They're like, who is this guy that's rolled up an industry before anyone realized it existed? And um, Wow. Wow. That's wild. So tell me about this corporate structure, because how do you how do you centralize all all 10 of these brands? what I had was a holding company structure and then lots of different subsidiaries. And we had a, a essentially a, a couple of different divisions. One was the, the buying and selling of virtual currencies through a, a B2C market, think e-commerce. Mm-hmm. We also then had exchanges like eBay, mm-hmm. where it's C2C, where people come and list and sell. We own brands like Player Auctions and Item Mania, you know, currency exchanges, basically. We then had our media division, which was all of our uh, publishing properties where you'd come to get information about games, learn all the attributes of the items, upload your character, show like all your accomplishments, all the maps, all the quest spoilers, everything that you needed to be able to play these games successfully. We had television. We also sold games. You know, we, we actually had like a, you know, we, we sold package software. Mm. Um, and so we had a few different divisions and we had about 700 employees. Mm, mm. That's amazing. So, um, Again, let's walk through this slowly. What does day one at that company look like? Is it you and one other person or, or, or how does that, is it the same partner from the previous? Yeah, no, this one I went off and started by myself. Okay. Uh, and then I went and found, a, we used to call them webmasters back then. This is still like 2001. Yeah. <laughs> and your webmaster was like the person that wore the hat that could build the whole website. Right. Um, and so I found my, call it web developer and, uh, we set up a website and, you know, I, I was a very good gamer, you know, basically a pro gamer. And I learned that I could make a thousand dollars a day playing games. I was actually, um, I was able to play six computers simultaneously. I still may be the only person that ever did that. And this is without any bots, like literally just playing six computers back and forth. Uh, I would do what would take 18 you know, highly skilled gamers and I would do it single-handedly just as a, a way to challenge myself. Um, I wanted to see, you know, how much could one person do? And, uh, and so started selling inventory. And then in the beginning, I would hire people that knew how to play games well, and I would teach them how to play two or three computers. And we were in the business trying to actually mine enough currency ourselves, but we had too much demand. And then I started trying to buy from other gamers and we still had too much demand. And so then I had to figure out how to create an industry of showing people that you could make money playing video games. Who, and who is paying you world, to play video game? Well, I mean, I, I would make currency. You play the game. And so, you know, as you play, you earn achievements and uh, currency. And I see what you're saying. And then you sell those things for real money. You earn through time. You spend time playing and you're earning the digital currency, mm. which then other people would buy. Mm. And so uh, uh, I get it. I couldn't right. meet the demand. So eventually I had to teach the world that you can make a lot of money playing games. <laughs> ah, and then that that's how that's how everything grows from there. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so there's there's 
an EOS scandal attached to your name, right? And a lot of people, you know, especially in the cryptocurrency world, they're like very protective over this field. Can you walk me through what exactly happened with EOS? Well, I'm, I wouldn't say there's any scandal there, really. I mean, um, so EOS was, uh, so Brendan Bloomer is the CEO. And so I bought Brendan Bloomer's company back when he was 18. He was buying and selling game characters and things like World of Warcraft, selling the accounts. Okay. And so I acquired his business, moved him to Hong Kong, and then he ran the game account sales division. And, uh, and so Brendan, you know, having been working with me, you know, most of his life, Eventually, I'm, he comes out to LA, he spends a little time with me. I'm like, oh, you got to get into this cryptocurrency game. He's like, oh, I'm going to go back to India, Hong Kong, sell all my businesses, and I'm going to come work with you. I'm like, great, let's do it. A month later, he's like, oh, I, it's not so easy selling my businesses. Uh, I don't know, maybe one day. And I'm like, all right, next time. And then I went over to India. Well, actually, I was in uh, Amsterdam uh, with Dr. Gavin Wood, who wrote the uh, yellow paper and the original code base for Ethereum. And we're good friends. And so we're talking, this is right when Ethereum went from $1 to $2 to $4, the first run up in Ethereum. And so then I went and cornered the market on all the GPUs in the world. I went and bought out all three wholesalers of AMD chips and all the major retailer channels bought up everything because I saw an opportunity to basically be the biggest Ethereum miner in the world. And so I was also uh, uh, a regular teacher or faculty at the Singularity University and they were hosting the first ever Singularity University in India. And Brendan lived between Hong Kong and India. He's like, oh, Brock, you're coming to India. I'll come be your host and take care of you the entire time you're there. I'm like, awesome. And so we're hanging out and I'm like, well, I just cornered the market on all of the you know, GPUs in the world to mine Ethereum. Uh, would, you like to, you know, would you like to participate in this? He's like, yeah. And so Brendan ended up being part of the money in that process which then made him a very large Ethereum miner. And at that point, even though I left, you know, now he's stuck in the business. <laughs> it's called you're in, <laughs> you're pregnant. And, uh, and then he's like, Brock, okay, I love this. I, I, I wanna come, I, I wanna move into the space. And so he went and camped out in uh, Virginia next to Dan Larimer for a month until Dan Larimer agreed to create a company. Mm. And so that's how Block One or EOS got started. Uh, it's in Hong Kong because that's a lot of the original employees and things from that IGE business. Mm. And, um, and then we went and led a token uh, sale, which was the biggest ever, $4.2 billion. Mm. It was a sale that ran for one year. Um, I mean, I think massive, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as far as a blockchain is going, it's, uh, I think it's got more transactional volume than every other blockchain combined. Mm. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I'd still say that EOS is a huge success. Google just selected EOS. Uh, they're actually now a block producer or launching their block producer running a node. Mm. Um, Google decided this is the technology they want to work with. So I'd say it's a success. I mean, obviously crypto prices are down from where they were in their high. So if anybody bought in at the absolute high of the craze, yeah, you're down. But that's true of every other <laughs> token. Of so that is that why period, people are including, upset? Including Bitcoin. <laughs> right. Is it, so is that why people are upset? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, um, they feel that block one should be doing more, but this is a long game. You know, the goal is not to- Doing more like what? Spend every, uh, I mean, I think they should be fun. They, people are like, oh, you should be funding all of our companies. So if you started a company, you're like, you should be funding me. It doesn't quite, but people get frustrated. People don't like rejection. You know, they feel, you know, and I do agree to some extent, 
that Block One could be doing more to support the community. Mm. Um, you know, if I were there and active, uh, I would be doing that. And so, you know, but the, name any crypto project. You know, every single project has got a bunch of people that are, you know, you can't do everything right. And and you're always going to have some people upset. Look into any crypto and you're going to find some people like going, blah, blah, blah. right. it's just the way. Right, right. So in the tech space, is is that your focus, Block One? No. So I'm like a like a doula for creation. So, you know, I'm I'm. I, I spent 10 years in call it virtual worlds, dealing with virtual currency and testing economic theories in these call it virtual countries of sorts. And after 10 years of doing that, I wanted to see if these same ideas could be implemented in the analog world, you know, or the default world. And so uh, I'll just go through a few of the things that I did, but um, I'm chairman of the Bitcoin foundation, started blockchain capital. Uh, the first venture fund in this space that funded the Krakens, the Coinbases, the BitGo's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, started Tether and so created the U.S. digital dollar that's doing you know, $10 trillion a year, um, kind of significant innovation, the most traded crypto there is. Started the first crypto bank down in Puerto Rico in 2014, uh, did BCAP, the first ever security token, did MasterCoin, the first ever ICO. Um, I've done like 50 things in the space. So I'm normally there just through the process of creation. Mm. And then I move on to do the next thing. As I say, I'm chain agnostic. I don't subscribe to maximalism. I don't say this coin is better than that coin or my chain is better than your chain. It reminds me a lot of religious fundamentalism. Mm. And it's far too early in this game to be saying this is how it is and this is what's going to win. Um, I believe that if anyone succeeds in making the world a better place, we all win. So keep on innovating and let me know how I can help you. Right, right. Okay. Um, so you obviously got a lot of money, right? Um, I, and I want some of it, right? <laughs> so how, how, how do I get you interested in investing in one of my companies or what kind of companies are you looking to get into involved with? So I care about impact, right? So okay. I think of life kind of like a game. And so in the game of life, how do you measure your success, right? How are you keeping score? And so I went into the options menu of life and I chose my own adventure. And so I measure my success in life by the positive impact I have, not by what I have, but by what I give. And so if you're interested in my participation or support, it isn't like I've got some idea to make a bunch of money. That's not what gets me motivated. Right. I want to hear, you know, what do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? What do you hope to accomplish? What is your intention? What is the impact? And if it's something positive, if it's something that's going to make the world a better place and you're passionate about that mission, that dream, now all of a sudden I'm interested because mm. it's not about making money. It's about what are we trying to do? Yes. And then from there, how is it going to be sustainable? How is it going to work? But, uh, you know, money is not what motivates me. You know, it's, it's like, how are you going to change the world? And when you show me how you're going to make the world a better place, that's what gets me interested. Mm, mm, interesting. I love that. I love that because... That's how I choose the companies I work in. You know, there's a lot of people like, oh, yeah, you know, drop shipping is a great business. And I'm like, you know, I grew up, I know we weren't millionaires, but I grew up around money. So I'm jaded to money. Money doesn't impress me, you know. But um, I love that you said it because that's how I choose my companies. I'm like, is, you know, I, I would never get involved with, let's say, a soft drink. Right? Like soft drinks kill people. <laughs> like I wouldn't want to. And it could be good money. Right. And you could market it. So, um I love that. I love that you're not just like doing things because you're going to get an ROI. So it's great. Um, all right. Let's talk about your 
run for presidency, right? You decided to run for president, which is uh, basically mission impossible. Um, so I want to know uh, why you think you could win. Well, it depends on what your definition of winning is. Okay. First of all, you know, I feel I've already won mm. from the moment I announce that I'm running. Okay. Because once you've stepped into that ring, you know, there's no going back. You basically just put your, you, you just determined your life path. Right. <laughs> and, and it's a path of major sacrifice, you know, to run for president, you have to be prepared to lose everything. I mean, you're going to have every decision yeah. you've ever made life highly scrutinized it's going to be a painful process and you know it, you could lose everything you know including your liberty possibly your life possibly your life it's it's no joke it's the ultimate ring yeah and it's the ultimate arena of arenas and so um you know why would someone possibly subject themselves to that you certainly don't do that as a pr stunt there are a lot of things you can do if you have money if you want to create you know if you want to make yourself famous, right? <laughs> Running for president is not the one I would advise anyone to ever consider for that reason. <laughs> right. You do it, you do it because you care and you do it because you have a message you wish to share. Mm. And so I can summarize why I'm running for office in one word, love, love for this country, love for the American people at a time where I am deeply, deeply concerned. The United States feels like the divided States right now. We're divided. We're divided politically. We're divided economically. We're divided racially while simultaneously facing existential threats environmentally, technologically, pandemically, potential conflict with other with foreign nations. I mean, it's uh, I feel like we're doomed if we don't do something. Mm. And I'm not the type of person that's just going to sit on the sidelines and watch the world burn. Mm. You know, I'm going to go do whatever I possibly can. Mm. And so I hope to deliver a message and I hope the message is heard. You know, that we should not be acting out of fear. Mm. You know, we need to be finding, we need to be finding unity. You know, we need to be acting from our heart space, from a place of love. And at a time where I think people need to hear that message, because we're in for a rough couple of weeks. I mean, this is yeah. it's seven days till the end of the election. And, you know, people are not even talking to each other. Families have been divided based upon their political beliefs. It's, yeah. a, it's crazy. And we have to remember, it's not about what we're against. It's remembering what we stand for. Mm. We have so much more in common than we mm. have things that separate mm. us. Say that. And say that again. To, say that again. It's not what we're for. What? It's right now. It's so much of it is like what I'm against. What I'm against. It's not about what you're against. It's what are you for? Remembering right. what you stand for. We have so much more in common than we have things that separate us, and we have to remember to engage in conversation with dignity, with respect. Because mm. the mm. moment we stop talking, that's when things really can go sideways. It's okay to disagree. I'm glad that we're different. Thank God that we're different. Life, <laughs> our differences are what makes us beautiful, and it's also what allows us to progress as a society. But we have to be willing to engage in that civil discourse. And through that conversation, you know, we can understand the different perspectives, where the other party is coming from. And through that understanding, we can find compromise. We can find a path forward. And we have to get back to the table. We have to start having these conversations again with people that we disagree with. Mm. It's, it, it's critical. So I hope to bring this and many other messages to the American people. And I think perhaps the most important of them is, and this is not just about politics. This is just a life message in general. 
Life is about acting according to your conscience. It's about doing what you feel is right, not making decisions based on fear, but making decisions based upon belief, knowing what your values are, knowing what your principles are, knowing what you stand for and speaking your truth. You know, and that also means voting your conscience. Mm. As uh, Albert Einstein is credited with saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Mm. As long as America continues to make fear-based decisions, we're gonna stay in this perpetual cycle, this downward spiral. We need to start acting according to our conscience and doing what we believe is right, because we only have the power to change ourselves. But as we better ourselves, we have the ability to inspire others. And as we act according to our conscience, we can collectively start acting according to our conscience. And that is when the real change is going to start to happen. Mm. And so uh, there's a lot of things that I think the American people need to hear right now. Um, and another thing that I like to bring up, and maybe you have an answer to this, what is America's five-year plan? What is America's 25-year plan? I haven't heard a single person. I haven't heard one person able to answer that question. And if we don't have a plan, right, if we don't have a vision, if we don't have a destination for the nation, we don't have an aim. And when you don't have an aim, you're going to wander aimlessly. And so coming out of the Great Depression, coming out of World War I, coming out of World War II, this country was able to come together despite our differences around a unified vision. And I think that's what's going to have to happen here. And it doesn't matter whether I'm president or not. It's ultimately us, it's up to us, the people. We are ultimately in charge. We sometimes forget that. Mm. And it's important to remember, it's like, get involved, mm. vote. If you don't like what you see, do something about it. You know, in life, you know, with our friends and our family, we expect our friends and family to act with integrity, honesty, values and principles, you know, you're not gonna be my friend very long if you're gonna lie and cheat and steal from me. <laughs> right. You know, even with our business associates, but somehow we allow that type of behavior in our government, the system that governs over us. And we're like, ah, it's, it's politics. No, it's not, it's not okay. The government shouldn't be held to the lowest bar. It should be held to the highest bar. Mm. And that is our responsibility as citizens as voters to exercise that right to vote, that wonderful privilege, that blessing we've been given, that we have a say in our future. The future is going to happen to you or it's going to happen with you. So let's co-create a future that we all wanna live in. What does America look like for you in the year 2030? And as we start to have that dream, as we start to create our individual visions, we can find that unified vision together. Okay. So you mentioned this five-year and 10-year plan. What is the five-year and 10-year plan that you have in mind? Well, I think part of the problem is, so as a systems designer or someone that studies systems, I understand the importance of incentivization. You know, what you incentivize is what you get. So as a nation, what do we incentivize? How do we measure our success? Historically, and to this day, it's been by growth or GDP. The problem with growth is it assumes that we have infinite resources, which we've known for quite a while we don't have. Right. And as all the land has been collected and now all of a sudden for me to grow, it's like for me to win, you have to lose. Mm. And so we're trying to take from each other, which is what's creating so much conflict. Scarcity. And we're in pursuit of yeah, scarcity and we're in pursuit of more money and power. But to what end? To why? Is it making you happy? Is it fulfilling your life? 
And the answer for most of us, and certainly those that have experienced is no, money doesn't make you happy. And so growth also doesn't distinguish or differentiate between positive and negative growth. The American people being sick creates a lot of, lot of economic growth. <laughs> Forest fires and hurricanes create economic growth. Polluting the air, water, and earth creates a lot of economic growth. Yeah. But is that the growth we wish? Mm. And so I think we need to take a step back and reevaluate how we define and measure our success as a nation. Mm. The founders of this country had a very powerful intention for us. That was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. What if we started to measure our success by life? Mm. Life expectancy in this country is in decline, mm -hmm. despite all the advancements in medicine, science, and technology. What if we started to measure our success by life expectancy? Mm -hmm. Policy would change. If we held our government accountable to this, you know, the private sector would change. Our air and water would become clean. We would become healthy. Mm -hmm. We would have real wealth, which is our health. Mm. And what about liberty? We're supposed to be the land of the free after all, but we have more people in prison than any other country in the world in total and per capita. Mm. What if we started to measure our success as a nation by liberty? It would be the end of for-profit prisons. It would be the end of the war on drugs. It would be the end of people being locked up with victimless crimes and you know, all this sort of stuff. What if we started to measure our success by our liberty, by our freedom? And then lastly, happiness. The kingdom of Bhutan and other countries are already measuring their success by the happiness of their people. And so I think we need to take a collective step back and reevaluate how we measure and determine our success and hold our government to account. This is how we upgrade the operating system of the United States of America. This is how we create an America 2.0. This is how we create an America that works for every one of us. No one left behind, but there's a lot of other things that have to happen. We gotta heal all that political division, economic division and racial division, You know, each one of those. The political one is how do we find that path back to unity? I think it's gonna come from a political movement a political rise of independence because it's not going to come from the left or the right. Mm -hmm. Something new is going to have to emerge that forces us back to the table, that becomes that magnetic sort of forcing function in the middle that brings us back together. And that's a matter of getting five people that are independent elected into Congress, maybe three in the Senate. That's all it takes. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they have to deal with you. You only have to be a very small part of the government before everyone has to deal with you because mm. you become that swing vote. You know, so, so we have to find a path back to unity. Economic division, we have to figure out how to make sure that everyone in this country's most basic needs are met as technology mm. is going to be eliminating or replacing tens of millions of jobs. Mm -hmm. We are gonna be undergoing some radical changes in the landscape of work. And then some racial, uh, the racial division, how are we going to heal that? I don't know what the long-term answer is, but I have a view as to how it starts. Well, let's, let's, starts. Let's, hold, let's hold off on that conversation because we're going to dive into that one really deep. How much time do I got with you tonight? We're going to make as much time. I, uh, let me see. Okay, I, I only have 18 more minutes, I guess, another appointment. But uh, we can always do this again we have and again. 18 more minutes? 18. Okay. All right. Um, so what was that plan? I, you know, I, I heard a lot of great things in there. But what exactly is the plan? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different things that you know we can we can double click on, and I'm not saying 
that it's my plan. Mm. You know, I'm putting forth ideas okay. for us to consider, right? To consider that for a moment. And I think how we define our success is core to it. Right. How we measure our success, where are we trying to go as a nation? Okay. And I think that we want a nation that is uh, one with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was the original intention for the country. And somehow we've gotten lost along the way. We've, uh, we've fallen off the path. And how do we get ourselves back on a good path, a path that is ultimately one where we're all proud? You know, I'm proud to be an American, but we're not all proud because when you look around, we don't like everything we see. Things are not as good as they could be. And so what is it to be an American? How do we define that? Right. And there's a lot of things that we need to take a step back and reevaluate because we want to create an America that works for all of us, one that we're all proud of, one where this country is leading by example. Mm. You know, we, we are lacking in leadership as a nation right now. Mm. Mm. You, know, you um, look at America and everybody's like, oh, I, I don't want to, not everybody wants to be like us anymore. They used to be. Right. We used to be leading. We used to be demonstrating like how we progress as a society. Yeah. And we did that for quite a while and we were making progress by no means perfect, but we were making continual iterative strides. We were continually bettering ourselves as a nation. Yeah. And it's time that we start making those big strides, those giant leaps again. Let's talk economics. Uh, UBI is something that's consistently talked about and argued over. Uh, what is your stance on UBI? Because I'm completely against UBI. For me, I feel like it just contributes to uh, more inflation and an excuse for the central banks to print more money. Uh, speaking of uh, banks printing more money, here's a crazy stat for you. 22% of all dollars in existence were created this year. <laughs> mm. uh, oh, <laughs> when you hear that number, you're like, that doesn't sound good. Yeah. And, and the amount of printing that's going to take place over the next 12 months is probably going to be similarly... I don't want to use the word impressive. Um, uh, uh, frightful, perhaps, is the, is the right word. Indeed. <laughs> and so um, economics. So on the UBI front, um, I'm advocating for this concept of universal earned income. So basically and, uh, uh, work camps and gulags. Well, we have to figure out how, as a nation, if technology is going to be replacing a ton of jobs. Sure. which there's three and a half million truck drivers in the country that add up all the Uber, Lyft, and taxi drivers. Yeah. And we know driverless cars are here. This isn't like 20 years from now. Right. This is happening like right now, you know, over the next four to eight years. Mm -hmm. And so as tens of millions of jobs are replaced by technology, mm -hmm. we're going to have to find a way to do something. Mm. Because if tens of millions of people are feeling desperate. So, you, so, so it sounds like you're about to say that you're for UBI. And, Not and, exactly. And, and, there's, there's, some, okay. there's some nuances there. Right. There are some nuances. And it's something that normally I would never advocate. I'm, I'm a, okay. like a very practical person. Right. And when you go, okay, you're going to have tens of millions. When, when you're desperate, when you're fighting for survival, when your back is against the wall, values and principles become secondary to survival. And if we create tens of millions of desperate people in this country, the pitchforks will be out. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's called... I'm, I'm under normal circumstances, you know, I'm, uh, 
a fiscal conservative by nature. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, it, it's not something I would normally be advocating for, but if you take a look at the future and you say, okay, what's gonna happen over the next 10 years? You know, you start going, okay, we're gonna have to figure something out to solve for this economic division. The question is, what is the right answer? Right. And part of it is gonna be having to create some basic safety net to make sure that no one is starving to death, that everyone that has access to some form of but, shelter. But the problem is, the problem is, uh, at least from where I'm sitting, poor people are poor because they make poor decisions and they make poor money decisions. And when you give people money who make poor decisions, uh, you know, usually it'll exasperate the problem. I'm trying to figure out how giving poor people money isn't going to raise the price of goods and devalue the currency. Well, I, I'm not talking about here's a bunch of money and sit back and do nothing. Okay. <laughs> This is called your basic needs are met. And I don't think that it would even cost us anything more. You know, I, as I like to say, America doesn't have a resource problem. We're the richest country in the world. We have a resource allocation problem, an efficiency problem, an accountability, administrative problems. And we have a bunch of perverse incentives. It's back to incentives. Take a look at welfare. Welfare creates a perverse incentive that discourages people from going out and working versus encouraging people to go out and work. Correct. Welfare, welfare has created entire welfare class in this country. Correct. It's become more of a tool of enslavement than liberation. Yes. And so I think we need to do some serious restructuring. We need to take a look at these systems and say, is there a better way to do it? I also believe when you build systems, you want to build systems of inclusion, mm. systems that work for everyone. Because the moment you draw lines in the sand, you say, this is for you, but not for you. You know, these are the things where divisions begin. And so I think we need to take a step back and rethink, you know, these programs. And I think we're talking about some serious restructuring. I mean, there's almost no aspect of this government you can't double click on and go, wow, <laughs> there's a lot of room for change. And I like to think of it kind of like being a farmer. Imagine if you're just planting seeds mm -hmm. and planting seeds right. and planting seeds, right. but you never bother to prune, harvest, or even pull out the weeds. That's effectively how our government's been operating for a very long time. And I think it's time to go in and start to clean up this system that has grown out of control Yeah, and, and start to rethink incentives. I mean, government, have it's back to growth. The government is just trying to continually grow and grow and grow. Mm. It's back to what are, how are we measuring our success? So our government has this idea of use it or lose it. If your budget gets increased and you don't spend it, mm. you don't get it the next year. Right. Where... Normally, if you came in under budget, that's something that would get you a bonus, a raise, and likely a promotion. Right. But we, we're incentivizing the wrong things. We are incentivizing endless growth. Our police departments are the same way. We arrest more people to get a bigger budget, to hire more cops, to arrest more people, to get a bigger budget, to hire more cops. It's back to growth is how we measure success. Mm. And I think we need to take a step back and start to think about how do we want to define that success and growth is no longer the answer. Growth is no longer serving us mm. and we need to rethink it. Um, let's talk race relations. Um, we've seen uh, a lot of, I would say visceral reactions to um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, so on and so forth. And, um, it's a problem. Racism, racism has been a problem in America for a very long time. Uh, you become president today, hypothetically, 
what's your plan to resolve some and heal some of these woes? I think it starts with acknowledging the past. Okay. It's very hard. It's very hard to heal if you're not taking responsibility and saying, I made a mistake. Mm. This is what I did. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. As long as we don't acknowledge the mistakes, and a lot of mistakes have been made, it goes all the way back, starting with the indigenous or the Native Americans, mm -hmm. then the Africans that were brought over here without their consent and forced into slavery, and the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. So I think it starts with the truth. Mm -hmm. you know, history okay, or history. so we acknowledge. White folks acknowledge the wrong. The government acknowledges they're wrong in it. What's, part, what's the next step? So once we've acknowledged the past, once we've gotten through truth, then we all need to take a sit at the seat at the table, right? Everybody has to take a seat at the table in the present. And then we have to start the conversation of where do we go from here? Mm. But you can't really begin the process of healing and coming up with a plan for the future until you've started to heal the past. Mm -hmm. And it starts with truth. What we've been taught is a lie. Our education system has been teaching us things that are not true. How do we expect people to heal mm -hmm. if we haven't even taken the first step to healing, which is acknowledging, you know, the things that have happened, the, the creating of 500 treaties with the Native Americans and violating every single one of them mm -hmm. in our constitution? You know, Native Americans weren't even human in the beginning. Black people are still three fifths human. We have to like actually start to. We got to fix this stuff, mm. but it starts with that. I don't have the answer of where we go, and I don't think it should be me presenting it. Mm. I think it's something that we have to sit down, you know, begin the process of healing, and talk about where do we go from here. Mm. So I don't know where it goes, mm. but I think I know where it starts, and it starts with truth. Okay, great. I love that answer. Uh, great, great response. Um, so human trafficking has been a, a big issue in America. Um, Biden's son's laptop has leaked all types of disgusting content and you're attached to your name is attached to, uh, Epstein and some other stuff like that. Um, how do you deal with that? And, and tell me like, cause I, 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 you know, I looked at the wiki, the wiki basically said that, uh, the, the person who accused you and your partner of sexual misconduct. It was actually some sort of scammer or something like that. Like they just like, they, they tried that with a whole bunch of different people. Is that correct? Yeah. And he went to prison for it. So this is back my first company. I was 16, 17, 18. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there were three people, two of them were adults. <laughs> I, you know, I was one of the young people and the other one that went to prison was the other minor. And they came to me and said, Hey Brock, let's file a lawsuit and we can get rich. I said, no, thank you. And so they then had to, they had to make, accuse me of something to discredit me as a witness. And they subsequently all apologized and dismissed their cases. So it is something that's out there. Right. I was a 16, 17 year old and nothing ever came of it other than some bad media. And it's one of the things that I have to, how do you, know, you how with. do you, so how do you deal with that? Like with that on your Google record, right? Like how do you pivot from it that? It made my life really, really difficult. Yeah. It, it made everything I did in life almost impossible, but it taught me how to play the game of life on impossible mode. So it made me really good at things because nothing came easy. I had to work 10 times as hard. It made me sympathize with other people that have had to struggle in life to get, you know, equal opportunity because my struggle was real. Yeah. And for something, I didn't do anything wrong. 
you know, but it made, and it also taught me a lot of other wonderful things. It taught me not to judge people. It made me hold myself to the highest bar because I was like getting my second chance in life. It also made me realize there should always be a road to redemption, you know, to give people chances to better themselves, to prove themselves. So some really good things did come from it, but it was a very painful thing. You know, it hurts. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein thing is even crazier. I got invited to speak at a conference alongside some Nobel Prize winners in 2011. And I guess he sponsored the event. <laughs> like, I speak at events two or three times a, a week back then. And I didn't have a budget to like background check everything. It's like, I'd never heard of this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Had I, had I known who this person was and knew what I knew now, I would have never gone and spoken at the conference. But, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, well, this is what happens, though, when you run for president and you do big things. People right. are going to use whatever they possibly can to tear you down. And the good news is they've already done everything they possibly could to me. Yeah. I've run for president and they've got no new material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, when I, I saw the Epstein doc and I felt like the documentary, the Netflix one, or whatever it was called, and I'm like, this doc ain't really getting to the root of the stuff. It looks like it's trying to implicate a whole bunch of people that wasn't involved. Like they made this one part was like about Chris Tucker. I'm like, damn, like y'all trying to implicate Chris Tucker in this shit. Like, come on, yo, like y'all bugging. But so, but human trafficking is a problem. Pedophilia and, and sexual abuse of children is a problem in America. You become president overnight. What are you going to do to mitigate the risk of something? Talk about it and fund it big okay right now very little money is going to like prevent human trafficking are you kidding me like end the war in drugs take part of that money to actually get people the help they need if they've got problems with addiction it's a mental health issue it's a social issue and then put a lot of that money into things like human trafficking actually one of the uh, uh the jeffrey epstein victims was uh here with me today uh, we're very good friends. I do a lot. I'm trying to support human trafficking. You know, it, it's an issue that mm. I think needs to be, uh, we need to do something about it. It's, I'm a father. I have two daughters. You know, the kids are the future. We need to protect them. We need to educate them. We need to prepare them for the future. Right, right. <laughs> Everything we do, we're here for them. <laughs> we're here to basically try and do our best job so that they can inherit the earth from us and show up in a good way. And so I'm a huge advocate of protecting our kids. I am supporting initiatives. And uh, I think you'll be very impressed by some of the things that I've been working on the last couple of years that will become visible um, in the not too distant future. Love it, love it. What's the hat you got on there? This look like a Gatorade symbol. It's a lightning bolt. What's that, is that one of your companies or? No, so uh, the, the logo for the campaign is this, uh, it's basically a bee with a lightning bolt. It's okay. red and blue. Oh, that's, that's and so campaign I, merch. Yeah, so my name Brock in Hebrew means lightning. Oh. And I was, uh, um, uh, I, I was kind of adopted. I had a naming ceremony with the Lakota tribe of Standing Rock. Okay. And then they gave me my Lakota name, which is Wakia. Thunder. Um, oh, that says uh, Native, like, Native Americans? Yes, like the Standing Rock. It's the North and South right, Dakota right. Indigenous. So I, I spent a lot of time supporting indigenous-related um, causes. You know, I feel like what I can do in life is try and give a voice to the voiceless. Mm. You know, I'm not going around figuring out what polls best. You know, where am I going to win my votes from? I act according to my conscience. Okay. And 
the indigenous or the Native Americans have never been a big enough voting block that anyone seems to care. They continually have been given the short end of the stick. And so I'd like to start with doing all that I can to support them. Um, and it's back to what we do back in business. So my family office for my business and the things I invest in, you know, I want to fund, you know, female founders, black, brown, Native American, Latino sort of related businesses, because I have a choice. I, there's so much opportunity in the world. You know, where do I want to devote my time? Because I can't do everything. I have to pick my battles. And so let me play my part to support those that historically have not gotten the support that they deserve. And so this is like what I spend my time doing. I live in Puerto Rico. I moved down there three years ago because I'm like, what part of the United States is struggling the most? Yeah. You know, Hurricane Maria hit the longest blackout in U.S. history. I moved down there in the midst of the blackout to try and like put roofs on homes. Mm. I support 50 different philanthropic organizations on the island, help to support uh, a startup ecosystem working on solving problems related to food security, energy, you know, all, all the things that I possibly can do. You know, this is, this is how I choose to spend my time. Again, I measure my success in life by the positive impact I have. So, so uh, I come from the school of thought of uh, Rothbard and some would call it anarchism. Um, I would just call it liberty or freedom or sovereignty. Um, so I don't believe in the existence of this state, you know, and for example, somebody asked me, they said, Hey, Hotep Jesus, we want you to run. And I'm like, I'm more powerful outside of office. So I guess there's like two things there. One is, you know, aren't you more powerful influencing people's lives outside of office? And then why work with the state if the state is corrupt? Because I think we can fix it. I okay. think we can. I think we can change it, but it requires like stepping up and doing something about it. Mm. I feel like we're back in that moment of like the creation of this country when you had 13 colonies, 13 colonies that were very different and didn't agree on much, but they had a common goal. They had a common enemy and they were able to unify to create these United States to free themselves from their oppressor. I think that we're in a very similar situation right now. Check out this video at liberate.us. I'll uh, make sure I'll drop that here in the chat so you have it. Okay. Um, Liberate.us. Uh, I'm already on it. All right. So, um, yeah, beautiful. I think that we can make a difference. I think that we can create a political rise. I think that we can take our government back. Okay. I think that we can create a government of, for, and by the people. Mm hmm. I believe we can do that if enough of us get involved. And so I'm not doing this just for me. Right. I'm creating the tech stack, the database, the ballot access, you know, all the tools necessary, the funding to run for political office. And I'm looking for a hundred candidates mm. to support in 2021 and 2022. I'm looking for doctors, teachers, business people, entrepreneurs, mm. scientists, engineers, farmers, artists, podcasters, whatever. Mm. I'm looking for people that care, that are not interested in money and power, but are interested in showing up and serving mm. because they know it's time for a change. Mm. And I'm not doing it through a political party. I do not belong to a political party. I've, I'm, I subscribe to the George Washington school of thought that the problem is political parties. Mm -hmm. Political parties lead to corruption. Mm -hmm. I want to see candidates elected into office free 
to act according to their conscience, to directly represent the constituents that voted them in there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not to, you know, normally if you get a calling, you're like, I want to, I want to serve. I want to do something good. I want to get involved with my government because I don't like what I'm seeing. You're like, okay, I'm ready to do this. And it's kind of like training day. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I guess I need money. <laughs> oh, I guess I need ballot access. Oh, I guess I need technology and get out the vote and platform and ideology. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this mission is daunting. And then you're like, oh, I guess I better join one of the political parties. Yeah. But the political parties have a quid pro quo. They're like, yeah, we'll give you all the things you need, but you now do what we say. Absolutely. Yeah, you work for <laughs> And that. I think that therein lies the problem. And so I'm committed to making that change happen. Mm. And I'm looking for those of us, because I, I, the, the government is that system that governs over us. Mm. And most of us are like, Oh, I don't want anything to do with it, you know, yeah. in the same way that you do. But as long as we didn't, don't do anything about it, as long as we don't get involved, we're going to stay in this perpetual loop. I think it's time we take our government back. Yeah. Last question, and I'm going to let you go. You become president. What's your, you know, they say, oh, you know, you have get these executive orders, right? So, uh, you know, let's say, hypothetically speaking, you're president right now. What is your first executive order that you issue? to pardon and expunge everyone in our criminal justice system for nonviolent cannabis related crimes. Mm. Day one, expunge, expunge. It's not just the pardoning, it's also the expunging. And then it's a matter of working with Congress and our foreign treaties to get things legalized and to defund, basically to, to, to prevent the federal government from enforcing it. Day two is the Jones Act, an executive order that, uh, uh, freeze Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico from the Jones Act so that we have free trade in this country. Mm, mm. Can you talk about the Jones Act and, and, and educators? Yeah, I'm so not the familiar. Jones Act, yeah, the Jones Act is this thing that was created a little over 100 years ago for reasons of national security. But what it does is if you're in Alaska, Hawaii, or the, uh, uh, um, the U.S. territories like Puerto Rico, you can't have food come from the Dominican Republic right next door to Puerto Rico. It has to go to Miami first. It has to go to the Continental, has to be taken off the ship, put back on the ship, and then go to Puerto Rico, which is why uh, cost of living is so high in these places. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and it's one of the greatest things that's preventing and harming. You know, I live in Puerto Rico. I just came back. I just visited. Uh, I just spent a, couple, a few days in Alaska. This is a very real issue. It's not one that most of us in the continental United States knows about. But if you live in Hawaii, Alaska, or Puerto Rico, it is that thing that you, it's, it's the main thing symbolically holding these places back. And it's, uh, uh, you know, I would issue an executive order to exempt these like, places immediately. I like that. So on the weed thing, it doesn't matter if somebody was moving uh, a dime bag or a truckload of weed, you're going to expunge and let them go. If it was nonviolent, yes. I believe in legalizing or re-legalizing nature. The idea that that's even like has to be said, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? The idea that we outlawed nature. What? <laughs> so, and where did we do it? Why did we do it? I think it was in 1932. DuPont had this new thing called plastic. Yeah. They, and they, they couldn't they outlawed compete. Hemp. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't compete with hemp. So they outlawed nature in favor of plastic. And that's why we have all this plastic in the world. I think that's one we should fix. I think nature is a good thing. And I don't think we should be outlawing nature. I think we should re-legalize nature. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally appreciate that. That's so, so true. Um, Brock, great talk today. I'm going to let you go ahead and get to your next appointment. Um, 
there's some things philosophically that you and I agree with and disagree with. I'd love to just chop it up with you online and kind of sort out some of those things philosophically. Um, but man, thank you for coming on the show today, bro. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you again. And hopefully this is the second of many. Yeah. We, if anybody, I can convince you, maybe I can convince you to run for office. <laughs> Probably not, <laughs> but those are th that's that's some of the things I'd like to discuss. You know, our philosophical differences. I really want to dive into that um, a little bit more, and 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 you know, spar a little bit, mental mentally spar a little bit on that topic um, to really juice what you're thinking about. You know, uh, running and what you think you can do on the inside. But yeah, this is our second conversation. Anybody's not familiar, I forget what channel. Do you remember what channel it was that we had our first conversation? I don't remember, but it was yeah. uh, uh, Chris and Brittany Kaiser. It was the four of us, and we were talking yeah. about all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. That was another great conversation with me and Brock. That was, I want to say, this might have six months ago, maybe, or, or less. But yeah, another great conversation. You guys dig through the internet. Go find that thing. This is Brock Pierce. Brock, you go ahead and get out of here, man. I'm going to go ahead and close out the show. Thank you once again, man. Thank you. God bless. Bless. That was Brock Pierce running for president of the United States. Um, I'd really love to pick his brain and understand why he feels like we can change this system on the inside, you know? Um, and I'm not one to just completely dismiss somebody's thoughts and say, hey, you can't do it from the inside. I... I can't see into his mind. I can't see what he's thinking. I can't see what he envisions for the future. Maybe he's got some trick up his sleeve that he thinks he can, he can pull something off. Um, I don't see it from where I'm sitting, but that's why I want to pick his mind and, and spar a little bit so I can see that. And I would never discourage anybody from going into politics. I would discourage myself from going into politics. I feel like I'm more powerful on the outside. But um, if people feel like they can make a difference in politics, you know, by all means, go ahead and take a shot at it. You know, um, I'd love to I'd love to see I'd love to see people try. You know, I never tell people, you know, yeah, you shouldn't do that because this is how I think, you know, I, I hope I'm, I'm hoping he's right. Right. Like I'm hoping there's someone like Brock who can go on the inside and actually affect change, because if you look at his executive orders, those are big deals, you know, the Jones Act and basically making marijuana free and not not from the monetary perspective, but, you know, freeing the plant. I mean, I, you know, I learned about that DuPont story many, 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 many years ago about how DuPont basically lobbied the United States government to outlaw hemp because people were doing all types of interesting things with hemp. I mean, you can make clothes out of hemp. You can um, make houses out of hemp. I mean, it's like if you type in like things you can make with hemp, it's like thousands of things you can do with hemp. You can make plastic out of hemp, which would completely change. You know, right now they're making plastic out of chemical and you see what it's doing to our environment, it's not biodegradable. So um, I love that he brought that up. You know, it's something that you're not going to hear on the debate stage between uh, the uh, two candidates we have now. Um, I think Brock, as far as technology is concerned, um, has been ahead of the curve. So I don't think we can underestimate what he might do in politics and, and how he uses technology to change the future of America.
Um, but a very interesting dude, you know, to to think of those things like, you know, gamified currency um, before, you know, crypto was big and to think of a Netflix model before Netflix, you know, I'm talking about two decades before Netflix. Um, it's just and then his ability to just raise money and get the business going and his ambition. And then the reason why he gets in these businesses, it's not like for money. He just wants to make the world better, um, which I totally agree with. You know, I would never um, get involved with a company that just does something stupid or it's just like a cash grab. There's a lot of things I can do for cash. There's a lot of things I can do for cash that I refuse to do. One, because it doesn't excite me. And two, because um, it's not going to change anything like like like. A product is supposed to solve. This is what we talk about in the Mogul Summit on Saturdays. Um, my, my Saturday classes. You know, a product is supposed to solve a problem. Bottom line: If you want to make a good product, find a problem and fix it. Uh, if it can be fixed with technology, even better. If you can make money off of that, even better. You know. Uh, so uh, I got to take my hat off to him for the things he's done in tech. And uh, I can't wait to pick his brain offline and, and, and dive into uh, and dive into his thoughts a bit more. But once again, this was uh, another sharp conversation with Hotep Jesus. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button. Before you leave, hit the like. Bump that algo. That good algorithm. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave a review. Subscribe. This is one of the most important places that we're having conversations, and I just want to make sure that it grows and more people know about it and tune in. I'll be back tomorrow with Wendy Yo for our discussion called Love and Marriage at 9.30. I'm sorry, not tomorrow, Wednesday. Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. here at youtube.com slash Jesus. And of course, Hotep's been told you every Thursday, 8 p.m. I'll catch you. Folks, later. Peace out. I love y'all.